Eat all the delicious buffets. I'm going to eat all the delicious buffets, but that's not what we're here to talk about now, Josie Long. Uh, I went to Jodrell Bank. I was very lucky to go to Jodrell Bank, do the Blue Dot Festival, and you weren't with me. No, I didn't get to go. I'm eating a banana now, very much to bring back the old school vibe. And as we know, of course, good to talk about science festival and bananas because bananas are proof of the existence of <laughs> Yahweh. Do you know, though, with bananas, do you know what? I think a lot about that. That There's a funny video that Robin has often done little bits of amusing stand-up about about how they go, look, it's built for your hand. Yeah. But never am I more convinced of evolution than when I'm eating a banana and thinking, what a happy little monkey I am. Yeah, but do always remember also that the reason the banana is so delicious and right for you is due to uh, human uh, cultivation and also... Oh. The, yeah, so so it's not like that. That is not the way Yahweh made the banana. Yahweh made a right pig's ear of his banana. Horrible old banana. And, uh, yeah, then, then humans went, we've got to make this banana better. How long have bananas been cultivated then? A couple hundred it's years? It's at least 30 or 40 years I mean, that- now. No, it's... It's about th- three hundred years ago, I think. But I don't really know my banana facts. Um, the uh, so I was up at Jodrell Bank doing Blue Dot, uh, which Sounds is good. you should have been there. I know I would have loved it, but you know other people have done more of the background reading than I have and deserve it more. No, but you don't need background reading for Jean Michel Jarre, public service broadcasting. Oh no, thank you. You just need to get right in there. It was that was the thing that every time if you were watching a band you thought not really that keen you'd then just turn very slightly to the left and go that's a radio telescope <laughs> and uh, the Lovell telescope just looked fantastic and there was a great kind of mix of people there but so you when you did your Radio Four series which I keep forgetting the name of all, all of the planets wonders all the planets wonders which we're hopefully going to remake uh, for an American network a new series of it finally after seven years. So what is it seven years ago? So what was when you made that, what had drawn you to thinking more astronomically? Um Well it was sort of a a realisation that at school in Britain your options are so quickly and so severely narrowed down and curtailed. And, you know, in year nine they say, do you want to learn about the world or the past? You can't do both. You know, and, and I think because of the way I've been brought up I was brought up, my mum really defiantly wanted me to be an artistic person and she saw that as a real, in very romantic terms, in sort of like romantic poem, poet terms. And so for me, like, science was always something, anything scientific was a little bit like, no, go on, boy. And I remember at school for GCSEs, I wanted to do art, music and drama and we were only allowed to choose one, so I did drama, obviously. And uh, then we had to do biology, chemistry and physics. I remember really, really blaming biology, chemistry and physics for the fact that I couldn't do art and music and feeling really absolutely fucking furious about it, especially chemistry, like putting my head on the desk, just thinking these utter bastards are making me do things that are boring, irrelevant, nothing to do with me. And I'm being deprived doing the things that I love. And and it was and it's partly because they're set up as if they're in competition with each other. And, you know, the truth is. All of the subjectification of things is such silly nonsense, really. That's why I love Blue Dot, is the fact that people are there going, uh, I think I'm going to see British Sea Power now, Mm. and then I would like to see a lecture all about the uh, which planets have the greatest potential Mm. for life. Well, art and science feed in and off each other constantly. You know, know, everything is about human adventure, human... Sorry, human invention... Human I like adventure. adventure though. Yeah. Adventure's a nice thing that what are you gonna do? I'm gonna invent something and which increases adventure. my adventures. Well, so yeah, but... it'll be some kind of sled. <laughs> but it is all about, you know, 
everything interrelates and everything positive, you know, everything that surges forth, human beings interrelates and all that shit. So I just love the all choice. That shit. Oh, that, that, that choice here. So do you want to know about the universe beyond or the goiters of popes? Goiters of popes. Anyway, uh, I spoke so to... What sorry. about you? Because I feel like we had a similar thing at a similar time because oh, yeah. I think you... Uh, shifted your focus obviously with you it's been a lot more thorough and a lot more long lasting whereas mine I think I think what I like to do is a little bit more faddish and dilettante oh I'm faddy yeah, yeah. But your fads so, but... are within science now. Well, yeah, and other areas as well. It's everything, you know. I I, I remain shallow, but become broader. That's uh, it's 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 the the, the the puddle remains as thin as it always was. But, but no one's ever going to knock you over. Keeps spreading. The uh, so what was what was it for you? What what did it for I you? I just there was uh, what the the transition hmm. was uh, probably reading James Randi's Psychic Investigator huh. or Psychic Investigator, and then reading Carl Sagan's Demon Haunted World, and that set me onto the path I do. So anyway. At Blue Dot, I spoke to loads of different scientists and uh, people who enjoy popularising uh, ideas. And, uh, well, here's Dallas Campbell, first of all. That's one small step for man. What are, you, what are you talking about, Dallas Campbell? You might have got go on the mic. Oh, we can go on the microphone. Yeah, okay. it's all right. It's very, uh, very casual. Um, very relaxed. Yeah. Just straight into it. Not that, not that angle. I know, but I like to angle. do it. No, no, no. Like okay. you're a uh, yeah. um, you know, sports commentator. You, you're, you're doing the big game. Come on. Like about go back to your acting it's the days. <laughs> yeah. It's the part. Who was the, that, the actor in, in the uh, mid-morning matters? They do that microphone stuff. Oh, I yeah. Remember. I can't remember. Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, anyway, straight in. Okay. Yeah, you make sure you get that right, okay? okay? You've been trained. What have you been talking about so far today? Well, today I've been talking about Mars because it's the 40th anniversary of Viking. I wish you said, because it's the 40th anniversary of Mars. It's and then Mars... I go, right, can we stop the interview, Dallas? <laughs> um, Mars is 40. You're not even a creationist. Actually, you're that. No, actually, this will interest you. I suddenly realised, as it's the 40th anniversary of, Mar- of the Viking, it's also the 40th anniversary of the face on Mars, which I think was from Viking, wasn't it? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was. They've found more since then. There's some There's fantastic stuff. If you go on to the, you know, all of the stuff that Curiosity's uh, yeah. been, you, you, they're just Shoe on great. Mars. Have you yeah. seen that? That's good. There's a bear on Mars. There's a Yeti. In fact, what happened when I was doing my slides for my talk on, on that, I suddenly got drawn into that whole world of things on Mars. Yeah. And so half my talk was just about strange things on Mars that aren't actually there. So, well, yeah, that's, that's what it's, it's a about. great thing, isn't it? The pattern-seeking nature of the brain means that we can see monsters <coughs> well, and former civilizations with uh, exactly. ease, but actually finding the real ones yeah. is much harder. Well, it, it is much harder. The interesting thing is, I was talking about Percival Lowell and Schiaparelli, of course, of canals on mm. Mars, and they didn't just think they were canals on Mars. They knew, as a, as a, with a degree, not with a degree of certainty, they absolutely knew, 100%. Well, what decade there was a, are we talking about there? Well, Schiaparelli, 19, oh, well, 1930s? yeah. But even Mariner 4, which was our first flyby, our first photograph of the Martian surface, the, the map that NASA used to plot that was Percival Lowell's map with all the canals marked on. That was the best they had in 1965. 1965, they were still talking about vegetation on Mars. And, and, Who's and the guy, did, moving to the moon briefly, yes. um, used to take photos of the moon uh, or others couldn't take photos of the moon. So what he'd do is he'd look at the moon through a telescope yeah. and then make kind of clay and papier-mâché versions of the moon and then take photos of them. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And they're very, you know, they're, they're to the Science Museum. And I love that idea of going, we haven't really got the camera equipment that works yeah. yet, so don't worry. Through this combination, I'm going to make photos of the yeah. moon. It's really nice. I, the Mariner 4, that first image that they took, all the, the data was recorded on a on a tape recorder in space and then was beamed back in a, as a series of numbers on bits of paper that came out of a machine. 
And the scientists were so anxious to see this first image of the Martian surface that they ran out to an art shop, bought some coloured pastels, stuck all the bits of paper with all the numbers, assigned all the numbers different colours, did a painting by numbers and created the first Martian image in, in pastels. And it was almost, if you compare the two, the actual picture that did come back, the actual picture, they're almost identical. But the false colour one that we did with chalks and pastels, is so, it's so brilliant, it's so beautiful. And, and wonderful. Do you you have an interest in uh, James, what's James 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 Nathan. James Nathan. Yes. in the background. That's yeah. the person who uh, looked through a telescope and then yeah. made. Uh, uh, I think they were clay models, as far as I'm You also have an interest in in the kind of the pseudo scientific views of yeah. uh, of. of the I suppose of extraterrestrials of you know that Eric von Daniken kind of very you yeah. know the boom times of the late sixties and seventies and and I suppose remarkably Eric von Daniken's books are still they they they, they have been uh, poo pooed many times yes. over the last uh, thirty years but it doesn't seem to matter no that's probably the great thing about pseudoscience versus science because if you write a science book it will go out of date whereas if you write a pseudoscience <laughs> exactly. book it, it is, never it, does it remains as relevant as it always was it gets more and more interesting and more and more I, no I I love all that stuff in fact there's a very good horizon I think it must have been when the when Chariots of the Gods came mm. out. And Horizon did a fantastic one with Eric Von Daniken, sort of piece by piece taking him down. But actually, Steve Crabtree, the the series producer, oh, that's right, that's a child falling over. Next <laughs> to us. That was, that's what that sound was. Steve Crabtree, the series producer of Horizon, we we did a little talk about this. There is something completely fascinating about it, about how the mind works and why it is we want to suppose such things. And there's, I don't know, there is, it is fascinating, and it's easy to poo-poo it. And just just the fact. Do you that have a favourite one? Um, you know who, oh, what's the, oh God, well I mean the Richard Hoagland, who is the face on Mars and yep. all the things on Mars, oh, love a bit of Richard Hoagland, in fact if I'm bored on a Friday night I sometimes um, watch a Richard Hoagland video of him explaining to me why there definitely are civilizations on the moon and Mars. I quite like things like the alien germ warfare ones uh, and uh, there's one our spaceship moon. And that's a great one. Have you yep. got our spaceship? No. Probably Alternative 3 is the sort of classic. Well, Alternative 3 is, yeah, that, that, that is a kind of uh, a spoofy one yeah. in its own, own way. But, they, but our spaceship moon is, is genuine. It, it, it's this, this theory that exists. I, th I think originally it was Russian scientists that the moon is basically, it, it's not yeah. dissimilar to the Death Star. Yeah. And uh, that, what I found interesting is whenever people say, oh, you know what, I mean, I've got a lot of time for David Icke. <laughs> And then it, the act of yeah. watching David Icke yeah. removes the... Actually, he's been very prescient. Oh, is he still talking about... Yeah, yeah, the first two hours of this documentary seem to be him yeah. still going on. They're about, quite long, I've noticed, his documentaries and his books. He, does, well, he goes on... His speech is about 12 hours, isn't it, when it's he does quite, Wembley? Yeah, it's quite, it's quite hardcore. Is he still on... What's the lizard? I mean, we, lizards were big a few years ago. It's still, is it that still remains there? It's in there. He doesn't talk about it that, as much. That, that is still part of it. But I was interested yeah. that, considering how much... Uh, you know, really, the idea that the moon is, is an alien spaceship is when you think of all the different conspiracy theories, when all of the the uh, media debasements that exist, yeah. that he could, and that's why I still sometimes think, is he in the pay of you know that that's my you, you think why would someone lure so many people with such utter bullshit yeah. when there is there, there's genuine stuff to be uh, yeah. scrutinised. The moon spaceship thing, because there's all, you know, and you know about the, ho the whole hollow Earth thing. There is a yeah. whole strand of, of pseudoscience about hollow planets generally. Um, I think it's Rodney Clough. Was it Rodney Clough? Oh, I don't know, Rodney, Rodney Clough. Yeah, it, it, well, he, he was organising a voyage into the hollow Earth. 
and it was a beautiful it was like you know the sunday times supplements that have a sort of 1200 pounds for a cruise around the baltic states and it's got an itinerary nine o'clock depart heathrow it's worth i think it's voyage hollow earth if you google that there's a wonderful site about this they were they they'd, they'd hired a russian nuclear icebreaker which was going to go up there and inside the hollow earth but it's it's hour by hour nine o'clock we will we'll get the monorail to the inner city of jehu and meet Ooh. princess urura i mean it's like it's full well, on that's great yeah, yeah no, it's good it's worth it's, enjoy it's, that. it's edward bulwer lytton isn't it is the the guy he was the vril man wasn't he was it him who was vril same man who came up with Dark and Stormy Night. It was Dark and Stormy Night. Oh, crumbs. Is it him? Uh, no, hang on. Who's, uh... Who's Vril? Because I told yes, someone the other day about why Bovril was called a Vril, and they refused yeah. to believe me that I it was the, uh, the wonderful history of uh, super-energising uh, yeah. liquids. I enjoyed your Hollow Earth programme. It was, it was on the a, other it day. Was it was a fun good. show, Steve. Yeah, yeah, I like all that. Um, but you... no, why is that? All, why do we like that? Why are we so drawn to that? Why I am I still so drawn to... I love reading about nonsense and flying saucers and Because it's fun to see where the human mind can go, isn't it? Yeah. And the, because a lot of those books are actually very boring, but some of them, you... I mean, it's like reading Carlos Castaneda. And once that gets... There's a great book by Ward Churchill, which, which has in it an essay which totally takes apart, because Ward Churchill is kind of a, a Native American historian and also looking at the way that, that in pop culture uh, different tribes have been used. And so this idea that Carlos Castaneda was... You know, there's a great debunking of... You know, he would talk around so as I would walk through the desert at night and they go, well, you die, you, uh, you, it, it's freezing, it's, 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 it's too cold, just have a little sleep there. Yeah. Then when I was sewing the lizard's eyes shut with uh, the needle that I'd made from the thorn, <laughs> but you were sewing it right again, this is a really, this requires nano-lizard uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, eye surgery. Yeah. Um, but I wondered whether, you work with Ken Campbell, of course, who... I who, work with who, Ken who, a lot, who yeah. was a, a lover of, again, <sighs> the bizarre places the human mind could go. And, yeah. and, of course, with great science, sometimes... Times, there's a lot of room still for. Um, there, there is uh, a, a, lo- a lot of room for dicking around. Ken was, you know, he was, he's one of those great minds that straddled both of those worlds so effortlessly and with such good humour as well. Ken was as fascinated by Alternative Three and David Icke and uh, all the supposing and her stuff, but also was very comfortable talking about quantum mechanics and doing a Channel 4 documentary about Stephen Hawking. You know, he was a great seeker, and I think it is those seeking minds. And I, th- I think that's where the crossover is, that desire to... Understand that sometimes seeps into these strange parallel universes and these strange worlds that don't really exist, but are just such wonderful stories, and they have wonderful images as well and wonderful ideas. So, did working with him? Do you think that helped? Were we already drawn to these things, or do you yeah. think when he, when he would suddenly come in, as you said, well, just the, the level of chutzpah, energy, and passion for whatever yeah. it was, whether it was pitching English, whether it was ventriloquism, whether it was quantum mechanics or consciousness. I used to read the Fortean Times a lot when I was when I was little. So and I and I knew Ken obviously as a comedian from television. I knew Ken wrote for the Fortean Times sometimes. And I I ended up working with Ken doing the warp, which is the world's longest play with Daisy Campbell and you know all these people I know you know. And Ken's enthusiasm for life, I mean he's bonkers. I remember when we day one when we started doing the warp, Ken said, Right, if you do the warp you know, you will lose everything. You will lose your all your money. Your if you're in a relationship, that'll be over. Your job, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> exactly. And it was like joining a cult. It was like joining this fantastic cult. You were sort of sucked into this incredible world. And something like The Warp, which was a play all about all this 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 world, I suppose. It takes you from 1950s Soho through kind of Scientology and UFO culture up to the shores of Alistair Crowley and Loch Ness. 
via all these extraordinary places. So, I don't know, I, I got really kind of drawn in even more into that world just because it, it is fantastic and creative and bonkers and mad well, it's and kind funny. Of be- and believe nothing, enjoy everything. Be curious yeah, about exactly. all, but don't be... Yeah. It's like, you know, we've, we've, we've often talked before about Alan Moore as well and those things yeah. of, you know, if, if, if you want to have a god, make your own god. Don't don't rely on someone else two, three thousand, four thousand yeah. years ago, some boring old bloke in a desert who's come up with an idea. Yeah. You've got your imagination. Make your own <laughs> exactly. god. Make your, I was thinking about yeah. things like... The idea that I, I, I've always liked the, the, the idea that when you have a dream, uh, you can imagine that's actually you in one of the other universes, yeah. and you're just having a quick glimpse of that. Now, of course, that's bullshit. There's nothing for, for it, but it's fun, isn't it? It is fun. It is fun. I, next year, actually, it's the it's the 70th anniversary of uh, the Kenneth Arnold Flying Saucer sighting. I think we should we must celebrate that. You were talking some, about this, yeah? In some way, it must be sort of marked. I think Kenneth. Well, Kenneth Arnold and, and Roswell both in the same year. I think we 47. should do a UFO day reading it from. I've, I've got the, the the book of the guy who communicated with uh, the gods uh, from the the, um, uh, the 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 great big British uh, kind of intergalactic communication society, which name I forget now. But I, I picked up his book years ago, oh, which right. has all the transcripts of the communication that he was sending back and apparently receiving. Of course, we've got Patrick Moore. We were talking earlier with with yeah. with uh, Paul Abel about that lovely, you know, can you talk for Newton, where you have the guy talking in this wonderful gobbledygook. And I've got books about. How flying saucers work for the 1950s. I'm very jealous. We've worked I've seen out. that book. I'm very envious. That it's I a don't tremendous that book. Really well, why don't we do a show together and you steal okay. it before the end? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> who's the? You know the famous flying saucer with the kind of like little dimples underneath. Mm. What? Who's that? I can't remember the guy's name. I what can't the hell's remember his name? I used to have three, like you know, like three ducks on the wall. I used to have those three flying saucers, oh, which was very nice, which got lost in a move. But no, I, I love all that stuff. I love, I love the flying saucers. It, you know, it's uh, it's part of what makes us human. You know, and it's interesting looking at all this Mars science that I've been looking at recently, and and so much of it is intertwined with nonsense, but wonderful nonsense. And I can, you can completely understand why. Percival Lowell came up with canals on Mars. It makes total sense. Of course, the planet is dying, and look, they need to. We need to geoengineer the planet to take the water from the poles to the the cities and the equator because the cities are dying. Obviously, just look through the telescope. It's a bit like actually. Have you come across these chemtrail believers? Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I'm not. I'm not that keen on them. The chemtrail believers, actually. But anyway, it's a conspiracy theory that where they think that actual aircraft contrails are some kind of covert government spraying operation. And their whole remit, their whole belief system is like, look, all you have to do is look and you can see them. That's their, that's their evidence. And it's exactly like canals on Mars. It's yeah. like looking up and seeing straight lines and creating a, a narrative that isn't there and completely convincing yourself. It's that, you know, and you can't argue otherwise. What was it? I think it was um, Jonathan Swift. It's impossible to... Um, argue somebody out of a position of non-reason where reason didn't get them in there to begin with. Well, that, I think, is very true. That, that, that Many of the arguments you might end up having on social media and stuff yes. uh, are, are utterly because you're using a different language, ultimately, and yes. an entirely different belief system about the possibility no. of uh, empirical evidence-based ideas. Yes. So the, um, I was thinking actually when you were talking about the warp, about the Illuminatis yes. as well, that when, when that was done, and uh, I know Daisy Campbell was asked on a few occasions uh, about why don't you do that again, and she went, because the people from the 1970s are still recovering from that, when you were saying about the warp <laughs> they, giving up everything. They are. Um, but that is, um, 
It's when you mentioned the 14 times, which I still love, and that's an interesting thing the divide between the 14 times and Nexus. That the 14 times is saying, Well, maybe it's fun, isn't it? Have a little think about this. Whereas Nexus says, Believe, yeah. believe this is why the vaccinations are doing <laughs> this to you. The chemtrails, the chemtrails, and it's that bit where you go, Whoa, it's, it, it seems like a thin line, but it's not. It is a broad a chasm very, between those really, things. I mean, the philosophy of the 14 times, I think it's great. I mean, it's always been a fun, it's always been there's always been a lightness to it and it makes no judgment at all it makes no judgment about whether something is true or false it merely and this is the whole thing about charles fort it merely presents as is and you can you can just wallow in it and enjoy it and take and take what you want and i re, i like that i enjoy getting you know i get the 40 and times and i get new scientists and they're kind of you know that's sort of it's kind, perfect viz, balance actually, yeah viz, yeah they, 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 these are the trilogy <laughs> um, i think they are the holy trilogy <laughs> they come as like a, a like a, a three pack that would remember be remember like Wizard and Chips because going straight for the new scientists into Drunken Bakers is Drunken uh, Bakers is good it's the, very the good great, the great comic strip Beckett never got round to it is, it is that isn't it I think people you know I, I talk about Viz and people always say Viz still going I'm like not only is Viz still going it's, it's considerably better than it's ever it's been it's the greatest it's ever been I think and it's that is so no service to of course the Donald Brothers did wonderful work but there is something yeah. about the miserable sadness, or indeed George Bestial. So we'll end, in fact, with a lovely quote from George Bestial after he's been attacked by a swan. Uh, oh, baby plays rough. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Dallas. Writer on the brain and other human fascinations, Ginny Smith. Um, so uh, we're obviously here, so, uh, oh, no, uh, a blue dot, and uh, you have, firstly, you've got a, a book coming out, haven't you? It's just come out, actually, yes. Um, so it's a DK Publishing, highly illustrated, all about the human body. And I wrote the chapters on the brain and the senses. So that came out in May, and apparently it's doing quite well. So, yeah, it's exciting. What do we know in terms of <laughs> in the period of time that you have worked on the human brain? Mm. Uh, what have been the changes? Because sometimes it, we, we're told that we still know almost nothing, and then at other points we seem to have the, these leaps mm. of understanding, or at least finding the areas of understanding what we don't understand. Yeah, so I think probably the biggest change is a few years ago, um, everyone was moving towards working out areas of the brain that were responsible for specific things, and you'd find you know, a particular area that lit up when you looked at faces, and a particular area that lit up when you looked at objects, and that sort of thing, and it would be a you know, big headline this area of the brain is responsible for faces. And now, actually, people, as the techniques are getting more sophisticated, we're starting to realise that that's probably a bit too simple. And actually, it's more about networks of brain activation and sort of connections and all of that sort of thing is far more important than specific regions. Who excites you to read? One of my favourite writers on, on the brain is Michael Gazaniga, who's also done uh, incredible research as well in terms of uh, um, the separate, when the corpus callosum has uh, been severed, the left brain, the right brain, uh, um, looking at things, you know, discovering which side of the brain seems to particularly pick up on patterns. He did some very, I think the right, if you show one of those um, paintings, I think it's Dutch paintings, of uh, fruit and vegetables turned into a human face, oh, yeah. uh, the right-hand side of the brain sees the face and the left-hand side only sees fruit and vegetables. So those kind of experiments, which are uh, to me fascinating. Who, for you, do you, did you have a point of, of seeing a book about the brain, reading and thinking, I need to know more about what is inside my skull? I think Oliver Sacks was probably one of the first 
things that I read that really made me go, wow. Because what I love about his writing is that he makes it really personal. Because of course, the brain is hugely personal and hugely individual, but the way he writes in with individual stories and real kind of storytelling as well, you don't just find out about a disorder, you find out about how it really affects a real person in real life. And I think that really kind of opened my eyes. I suppose you've, you must have seen your own brain. You've had an uh, MRI or similar, haven't you? I did have one once, but and they told me they would give me a picture, but they haven't. So, no, I haven't actually seen my own brain. Oh, that I is, know. That's, that I is really a, want to. such a disappointment because I, I, I did find it. I became quite addicted to I'm not someone who ever used to show baby photos or whatever, <laughs> but go, oh, have a look at my brain scan. That's my brain. And it wasn't because my brain was like everything about me was, was utterly unremarkable, mm. save for a slightly larger occipital lobe. It probably comes from reading too much and looking at too many things. But um, so... When you are working on a book for Dorling Kinsey mm. for something about the right, what are the problems of conveying sometimes possibly intricate ideas which are there for a mass audience? It's particularly with those books, we have very few words per section because most of it is illustration. So it'll be things like I'm trying to explain how the brain stores memories in 30 words or something like that. And there's so much of what I'm writing that is the best guess at the moment. But if you write that every time, A, it's really, really boring to read, and B, you run out of words very quickly, because by the time you've said, probably, according to the experiments that are going on at the moment, this is the most likely, that's all your words gone. So it's trying to get that balance of not sounding like it's 100% finished and we know it, because, well, no science is, but I think particularly when it comes to neuroscience and brain stuff, there is, it's changing so much all the time. But kind of distilling out what we do know at the moment, and chances are there's some stuff in that book that is already out of date, but that's kind of the nature of writing a science book. So what do we understand at the moment of how memory storage works? Because I think that is for people, that when they start to imagine a ghost in the machine, mm. it is from the fact that suddenly a name that you have not said or thought of for 30, 40 years appears, a memory with that uh, uh, appears, and you think, well, that can't have been in there all the time. There isn't the room. So what do we... So that, probably it was in there all the time. We do know that memories can be triggered by external events and you might not even notice what it is that triggers it. So it may be there was some music playing in the background that reminded you of that person and you didn't consciously notice the music, but it was enough to trigger that memory. So there's something called state-dependent recall. And there's a brilliant, well, a series of brilliant experiments. One of my favourite of them was they got some scuba divers and they asked them to learn some lists of words and they got half of them to do it on dry land and half of them to do it underwater. And then they got them to recall the lists of words on dry land and underwater. And the ones who'd learnt the lists underwater remembered them better underwater. And the ones who'd learnt them on land remembered them better on land. And they've done similar experiments with people after having drunk some alcohol or taken drugs or all sorts of different things. But you remember things better when you're in the same state that you were in when you learnt them. So it could be that you know, you just had a whiskey and you'd had a whiskey when you met that person. So there's, there's all these things that can trigger memories. We, no one really knows what happens when we forget something. We don't know whether it actually disappears from the brain or whether it's in there somewhere and you just can't access it. But we know that sometimes there is stuff in there that you haven't accessed in ages and you do suddenly, just in like that sort of example. In terms of that, this is something that fascinates me and Brian Cox told me to stop talking about it when we were doing a show the other day because it was irrelevant to the subject. But 
we're getting better at modeling brains and it seems that the technology you know mm. that, that, that broad MRI thing yes we, we find out it is overly broad and yeah. we've talked before about things like you know when they put karma like nuns inside a, a brain scanner and they ask them to think godly thoughts mm. and to find out if there's a god spot in the brain they've put they found dead out. fish in MRI scanners and yeah, found the, brain the activity salmon, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, but what about uh, this now, now if we're looking at uh, being able to model brains at a very, very uh, small scale, um, if we could make a brain in which every neural connection was exactly the same, every piece of insulation in that brain was a, a, an exact copy of the brain inside your skull now, would that brain possess your memories or your personality or any what would what do you think and this is conjecture mm. this is the next stage Frankenstein work but if every detail was physically the same because when we do talk about the brain you know, matter mm. that it is all matter that's a great question and actually this is a thing where I think it's changed so a few years ago I think I would have said yes because you know I believe that the brain the mind is physical manifestation of the brain everything that I am is in there somewhere but we're learning more and more about the way our brain interacts with our body and actually I think if you took the brain away from the body it wouldn't be quite the same I mean it's everything from when you experience an emotion, it's not just in your mind, you experience it in your body. And actually those bodily sensations of emotion might even be more important than the kind of mental processes. Um, and we're learning more about how even things like our gut microbes, our microbiota influence our brains. They think um, some cases of depression can, all, uh, can be down to um, changes in gut microbes. So I'm, I think it would, be in some ways like me it would certainly have all the memories that I currently have but whether it would experience those memories in the same way that I do when I'm inside my body I'm not so sure so if we just so we take out your brain we've made mm. an exact replica we then managed to reconnect it uh, with a level of brilliance uh, with this model of your brain is now placed back in your body at that point are we thinking that because this is an exact replica and now placed back into this yeah. all the trigger mechanisms etc yeah, I think that probably would. I think that probably would, as long as it could change and store memories and things for the future, because otherwise you'd end up with a kind of snapshot of me now, but it wouldn't be me in a week's time because I'd have experienced new things. So it would have to also change in the same way that our brain changes every day when we're doing new things. Yeah, I'm not going to put your but brain in a vat. Yeah. I'm just going to put your brain back in a new brain. Yeah, skull. and it can That's form it. new fine, memories and all of that. Yeah. You won't mind that, will you? Yeah, I reckon... I reckon yes, it's a weird question because there's this line, most people would say if you replaced one neuron with a microchip that did exactly the same thing, well yes of course it's still me, well then what if we replace the second one and at what point does mm. it, it's a weird feeling and it feels like it shouldn't work but I think that's just our kind of, it's such a difficult thing to study the brain because unlike pretty much everything else we can never be outside it and looking in because we're always experiencing the world through it it's funny isn't and that it? makes because it really we're always difficult inside it yeah therefore we can uh... even talking about it when you're saying my brain is recalling a memory what do i mean by my because i am my brain yeah. but even the phrase my brain doesn't really work when you actually start thinking about it so even 
the language we use makes it sort of doubly difficult. Uh, in the world of fiction, are there any uh, neurosurgeons, uh, any any books about the manipulation of, uh, of of the human brain? Anything within science fiction that ones that particularly enjoy in terms of the way that because for a lot of ideas you might not necessarily want to read philosophy, mm. but in something like and I always mention Philip K. Dick, but what Philip K. Dick's work he's doing is very often a narrative which is actually looking at the philosophy of being a, a conscious creature. I must say I'm not big on science fiction. I know that's a bit of a weird thing for a scientist to say, but I don't read a lot of it. There was um, a really interesting TV show out recently on Channel 4, I think, which was called Humans, which was about um, everyone having personal robots who looked perfectly human and acted human. And it was that was quite interesting to show kind of how you form relationships with these robots and, and then some of them became conscious and there was this kind of consciousness switch in their programming which was really interesting because obviously consciousness is probably the biggest question in neuroscience. What is it? Is it something special or is it just a kind of illusion that we have to help us navigate the world and can we ever create conscious AI? I think it's probably the biggest question at the moment and actually the way that AI is progressing it's probably not that far off and we really need to start worrying about it at what stage does AI sort of should it not be owned because that was the big question in the show it was the robots no longer wanted to be home help and they wanted to live their own lives and at what stage does AI become intelligent enough that we say okay maybe it shouldn't be a slave effectively you should definitely read some Philip K. Dick. Um, <laughs> thank you, Ginny. Thanks. Here is astronomer Paul Abel. Um, Paul, uh, you... Well, we're going to be talking uh, about uh, all manner of different ideas of why the universe is as it is and those things that we don't know. When does your kind of journey towards the world of astronomy, of cosmology, of investigating the universe, where does it start in your, in your childhood? Well, it started really as a means of escaping a very tedious existence. <laughs> uh, actually, I, I remember I uh, was able to get... Um, a uh, telescope from a very early age and the first thing I ever looked at was the planet Mars and before I looked at Mars it was just a point of, bright point of light in the sky and then through the telescope, this was, a, this was in 1989 when Mars was particularly close, uh, through the telescope it was transformed to a dot and light to a world with polar ice caps, with deserts, it became a place, another world and I think that's when I realised this is what I was going to do for a living. Then. And then later that year, I had my first encounter with Sir Patrick Moore, who was talking all about Voyager 2 getting to Neptune. And then I wrote to him, and he wrote straight back. And so it was a combination of those things, really, that I, and I began to get, you know, read a lot about science when I was younger. And While we're on Patrick Moore, can I just... Have you read his Can You Speak Venusian book? Yes, I have. It's great fun, it's, isn't uh, it? It is enormous fun. I've, I've, I've actually seen a copy of One Pair of Eyes, and the, the, the chap, sta you know, who's doing... is channeling one of the aliens, yeah. and his hair's standing on there, Patrick's hair is standing on her. And I don't know how Patrick was able to interview him with such a straight face, and seemingly allowing his point of view without being rude at all. He didn't at once hint that this guy was a madman. 
And that was Paul Patrick's gift, actually. Well, he wrote an enormous... I'm uh, just going to slightly skew towards books just briefly because this is partly what we're talking about, but someone like Patrick, well, what do you think... What was his ability to make sometimes reasonably complex scientific ideas? Yes. Was part of it because he wasn't initially a scientist, so he was approaching as someone who was curious and excited without being grounded necessarily in the kind of academic world? Yes, I think that's a... The great thing about Patrick was he had a gift for finding analogies that everybody could understand. They were quick to the point. I remember him once saying why it would be pointless to send uh, a nuclear missile to hit an incoming r- asteroid. He said, Here's your go. Sound check. Oh, we sound checking. Yep. Brilliant. No! I'll just wait for Brian. That's one small for man. Impressionist and a very good photographer of star systems and other things found in the sky, John Coulshaw. Right, so Trent Shambles' producer is now filling in for Robin because Robin is doing monkey cage in a field at the moment and I'm with John Coulshaw. And let's start with a lot of your work is very science-focused. You've got Brian and Patrick Moore and Doctor Who. Yes. What... What was it that got you into science? Was there a book or something you read when you were young that you went, oh, I like this? Yeah, it sure was. It was the Observer's Book of Astronomy by Patrick Moore. And you could even hear his voice in the writing. This is an eclipse of the moon. Interesting to watch, but not spectacular. For that, a total solar eclipse is quite, quite magnificent. You just heard the voice, even in the writing. Um, Exploring Space by Kenneth W. Gatland was another one. That was fascinating. Um, the picture cards that you used to get free with boxes of tea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the race into space. That was a great one as well. Um, so I'd always been interested in it. And around about the same time of watching the um, Sky at Night in 1975, I also began to watch the Mike Yarwood show. Mm. And so an interest in astronomy and impersonations evolved in parallel. I think that's what's interesting with people like Patrick, that even in his writing, you can't not hear that voice yes. when you're reading it and we're at Blue Dot Festival obviously Carl Sagan's another person that when you're yes. reading his work you hear that voice you hear that accent you certainly do I think that that's one of the wonderful things about uh, Carl Sagan even reading the words you feel inspired and at peace and your morale begins to automatically rise up you do I feel, I feel a glow after that <laughs> can you remember reading Sagan the first time so obviously the blue dot speech Robbins has done that on stage can you remember reading that the first time and what impact that just even that passage not necessarily the book had on you yes I thought it was the most wonderful encapsulation of the fascination and the profoundness of the universe and the science in it Mm. and our place in it it gives you a reminder of our smallness but it also gives us a sense of our power how we can get our heads around these things how we can get our heads around the infinity the huge spans of time those enormous numbers involved within astronomy which we just have to accept it was a beautiful encapsulation i remember watching uh, cosmos as well never missed an episode um around about 1979 1980 i was 11 and 12 at that time and it was just a beautiful thing to watch. Made the universe feel fascinating. I think it's great when we have a sense of wonder about things. And when you look to astronomy, it's good for the soul. 
Yeah, I think it's telling, like, we always talk about great works of fiction and the beautiful poetry in those words, but when we think of the great works of non-fiction, a lot of the time it's just, oh, it's Newton's theories and that sort of thing. We don't, we forget that Darwin wrote so beautifully and Sagan wrote so beautifully and we forget that these people were great writers, they weren't just great thinkers. Yes, exactly, and and the proof is there in that their words last in our in our minds and we continue to refer back to them and they are thought as as the greats that we always look to they are great signposts as we go along through time what what lately have you read then either science or non-science that's really captured your imagination like that i'm loving watching uh, brian's series uh, forces of nature I, i think Brian is such a fantastic communicator mm. of science. His enthusiasm really comes across, and that draws you in. That makes you interested. And I think he's, he's such a, a, a brilliant, uh, you know, ambassador for the outreach of science and taking it away from that sense that, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be like the Open University yeah. in a white coat. Where let us look at these findings. These are big, beautiful ideas. And that, that's how he communicates in it. Uh, and. You know, I remember not far from where I live, you know, the Hampstead Observatory there near Whitestone Ponds. A few years back, you know, there might be a handful of people who go down there of a Friday or a Saturday on a clear night to look at the moon, Jupiter, whatever may be visible. Since programmes such as um, Wonders of the Solar System, Wonders of the Universe, there are queues all the way around for like meters and meters yeah. and meters stargazing live the sky at night great uh, great examples of outreach that's just getting everybody interested in astronomy what do you think it was with this i mean you said you're watching sky at night from back in the 70s what was it about patrick then and moving forward now that you just you saw him and went Oh, I can't look away. I have to watch this. <laughs> yes, yes, he certainly has that uh, that g- g- gripping sense. Um, his b- brilliant energy, eccentricity, leaning forward, one eye open, slightly more than the other, and the pace of that speaking. Y- you could see that this fellow was uh, fiercely intelligent and fiercely interested in what he was talking about. Mm. It made you think, my goodness, what is this subject? I must explore it. And watching those episodes of The Sky at Night... Um, I just had to run to the cupboard, get my dad's binoculars and get ready and hope for a clear night that night, which there was, as a matter of fact. And I remember seeing a crescent moon through binoculars for the first time, which was a mind-blowing experience. And so that was my first um, um, connection with astronomy. The enthusiasm of Patrick Moore, 1979, 1980, Carl Sagan with Cosmos. Uh, there's been many programs and, and uh, Brian with the, the, the Wonders series in recent times has given that another boost mm. you know the, the, the it, it happens in sort of waves that come through be it Sky at Night be it Cosmos or series that we are doing now and it, it, it's fantastic it really is there's been, there's been so many um, there was a, a, a series a few years ago which, using very clever CGI from the makers of Walking with Dinosaurs, oh, yeah, yeah. created um, what a voyage might be like mm. to the entire solar system. 
little bit of drama in there as well. It was done with uh, a, a dramatic sense in parts. That was fascinating. Yeah, it seems like we had this period, we had Cosmos and then Ascent of Man, we had these grand science series. Yeah. And then apart from Attenborough, there was this kind of lull for a period. And now, thankfully, we're getting up with, with books, with TV, with everything. We're kind of building back up again. Yes, exactly. It's, it's interesting to notice the sort of waves of, of interest uh, through yeah. television and so on. Uh, it'd be interesting to study the patterns, see if we could detect any There's a anything. Paper in that somewhere. <laughs> yes. What did, uh, specific patterns and trends would we see? It's worth looking at. Lovely. Thanks very much, John. Well, from all of us here, a very good night. Right, so uh, shall we gonna, start the game? Yeah, no, we won't. This is uh, the, just so uh, the shambles. listeners know, uh, book shambles is very real, uh, and uh, so we're going to uh, we picked up. We just got to talking about uh, Patrick uh, Moore's uh, lack of condescension when talking to people who believe they've mastered Venusian yes. and other languages. So, what for you in terms of of the written word about science? Uh, who are the authors? Who are the scientists that? Have can just kept you on that kind of road of going. There, there is delight to be found here because I imagine sometimes in your work there is a point where things can almost become mundane and you forget about just well, practically how every day at the office. To be yeah. honest, <laughs> no, it's the the, the, the books are, the, are normally by the people who tend to teach as well as do research. They tend to be thinkers about what the whole subject means in a broader global sense than just what it means for locally people who might be interested in the area or, or in our immediate research groups. So definitely Carl Sagan. First and foremost, I read, I've read a lot of his stuff. I'm really a big fan. The way he writes, he, it's, you can hear his voice when you read his work. You, you know, it really is a craftsman. And... Uh, I his... love that, yeah. In fact, when we went on tonight, we've literally just... We, we sound very different to the first half of the interview. We've yeah. had an enormous injection of uh, adrenaline because we've just recorded uh, an infinite monkey cage in front of a, an audience in an open field at, yeah. at the Blue Dot Festival. It went but very I was, well. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that great line about extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And yes. those kind of... you know, every He writes beautifully in long form, but every now and again, that aphoristic style, yeah. which can sum up the importance of scientific endeavour or indeed the importance of, of human beings in their humbleness towards yes, yeah. uh, their understanding. There was a lot of that in his series Cosmos when he did an episode Who Speaks for Earth where he looked very much at the problems of who is making the decisions about nuclear weapons. What you know, He, he did a wonderful opening series to that programme where he approaches a planet that was full of viable and it's just radioactive sludge and all that's left is the cities and the libraries and all the people are gone. And you do realise that as scientists we do have this extra duty to be warning people of the dangers. And I, and I think that's what I really liked about a lot of his books, that the human element was there to the science as well as the science itself. I'm only going to ask you one more thing because our beers have just arrived, which is super <laughs> news. Um, but the... Uh, um, Something I didn't ask you on the show, which fascinates me is the idea. We were talking a little bit about the existence of extraterrestrial life, yes. the possibility of uh, sentient beings from beyond the planet Earth. Um, I wonder what you think about that idea that maybe there is across our galaxy, let alone across the universe, civilizations. There are many civilizations, but they never coincide. 
And so what we have is we live in a universe where should we ever have the ability to reach another planet with, like, we'll find the graveyard of there. Yeah. And in the same way that when human existence is long gone, they'll go, oh, we found some of these things on this archaeological dig. I, I, I understand that. I don't share that, actually. I personally believe there's probably a... If you were to be able to do a statistical study, you'd probably find a normal distribution of life in the universe, in the galaxy, and you'd have very simple solid life. We're probably in the middle to very advanced civilizations. And I think if you, if a civilization, if it does go through conflict, if what we if what we're seeing on Earth is indeed the normal growing up part of a civilization, uh, once stability, if stability can be achieved, it's in everybody's you know on that world's interest to maintain it. So. I, I don't actually think that all that's out there at the moment is just ruins. I, th- I, would, I, would, I honestly believe that, you know, eventually, you know, common sense must win out and life forms do enter a sort of humble middle age that is uh, probably why they don't want anything to do with... Uh, yeah, we're still waiting to reach the humble right, middle age. That's right, So that's my... I can't prove it, of course, but that's my belief. So if there was one book that you were, for anyone listening who is wanting to journey back into science, maybe they haven't studied it since they were at school, what would you say is a great starting point to give them that energy, that excitement, that curiosity? So that's a tough one. Oh, do you know what? She might still be clearing... Oh, is she? Do you know what? I I didn't see it. It literally came off, and I'm not sure where she went. All right, well, yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, if you just wondering what that was, they're just looking for Charlotte Church. So now this means that on the first day of Blue Dot, there's about to be now. If anyone's seen Charlotte Church, if she could go to <laughs> the first aid tent where her parents are waiting. Um, <laughs> they so, could broadcast uh, it through the telescope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we finally picked up a signal from Earth. What's it say? Charlotte Church is lost. Um, what, um, the what, book. What, what, what book would you think would, would okay. do? Well, this is where I slightly... Uh, as you know, Robin, I'm not a fan of string theory. But <laughs> Brian Greene's book, The Elegant Universe, is stunning. And he really does get into the nub of quantum mechanics and general relativity, which, you know, those are... I mean, I can't think of one book that will get everybody into anything, you know. It's which bit books like that will get us it's in. It's that slow... Because I remember yeah. I came back to it with James Randi's um, Psychic Investigator book. I found that w- brilliantly. I found it in Lavenham, which is both <laughs> a small town which uh, had genuine witch trials and also where they filmed The Witchfinder General. So to find a copy of a Psychic Investigator book and then reading about scepticism, I said, the third book along I suddenly found myself reading Demon Haunted World yeah and that that would be my close second one because I'd go for the Brian Greene one first because I guess people back it maybe who might be interested in relativity and quantum mechanics and the problems we're working on but the Demon Haunted World is brilliant from the whole ethos of why we do science why objective rational thought really is a candle against the dark night why it is so important and how we can easily be deceived by people if you don't have any understanding of risk or if you don't have any understanding of statistics or probability or just simple everyday things about, a set, you know, is that logical? Is that likely, you know? And this ability that to have this ability saves us from this demon-haunted world. So I think those two books, really, you know, the, the, the one for the science and the other for the philosophy of science, I would recommend heartily. Uh, the Times have aspirations towards <laughs> evidence-based politics as well as science. Uh, yeah, I think that's more absurd than uh, string theory. But <laughs> Beer? Beer, beer. That's one small step for man. So when I first met on Infinite Monkey Cage, we did a panel involving discussions on using maggots to make paintings. Sheena Cruikshank. Uh, Now, Britain Breathing, this is what you're doing here. Uh, What is this about? 
This is a citizen science project to try and understand about allergies. So around one in four of us have allergies and it's on the increase and they reckon about half of us are going to have allergies in 10 years. And we don't know why. It doesn't seem to be just genetics. It's something in the environment. It could be that we're too clean and our immune system doesn't get educated. It could be the types of infections, lack of worms, for example. But it could also be something that we're breathing in. So, for example, the different pollutants that we're exposed to. So there's things like NOx particles. So we're working with atmospheric scientists looking at that. Um, also the different types of pollen we're kind of farming on a scale that we never farmed brand new crops so we're exposed to all sorts of new things but the thing is we don't have any data to show what happens to people day to day because they only go to the doctor when they're really poorly the rest of the time they self-manage so we got people with allergies to help us design an app that would capture their symptoms and they use it as a diary so they can better manage the symptoms and we get the rough geolocation data to make a map of Britain of when and where the symptoms occur and we will then correlate that with other data sets like pollutants to understand why it's happening. So why did I just do what I did? I was uh, My height was found out, 173 centimetres, then I had to blow into this, find out lung capacity, 520, and as usual, <laughs> on all graphs about my existence, I was incredibly average. I was exactly <laughs> average there. So why? What, what is that to do? What's that going to uh, give you in terms of information? So that's just a, a way to make people think about what their lungs do. So all the activities we're doing here are sort of educating people about what your lungs do, so we've got this beautiful 3D printed model of some lungs with the bronchioles in there, which is where you get the breath. This graph is showing you the, the lung capacity and showing you that generally it's to do with height and sex. So the taller you are, the more likely you are to have big lung capacity and the men tend to cluster at the top and kids cluster at the bottom. And we're making these beautiful drawings here, which are with ink, and that's showing you the bronchial structures of the lungs. And then we've got some um, microscope slides and things showing what asthmatic lungs look like. So it's all trying to explain to people about lung function, which is linked into the Britain Breathing app. Now, on, in terms of more about your general career, do you remember when you started to become excited by, or what it was that excited you about the idea of investigating the universe, whether it's about lung capacity, allergies, pulsars, quasars, disease, whatever it might be, what was it that you thought, this is an interesting way of examining the world, the evidence-based way of looking at the world? So how I first got into science, or how I first got into this sort of niche. Just the whole I know, the whole idea of why, why you thought that, that you were going to use your curiosity for good. Ooh. Or indeed had become curious. <laughs> was there a point in childhood where you thought, yeah, science is, this is an interesting thing. This yeah, is no, I, I think I was really lucky. Um, so I grew up in, in rural Scotland on the coast and my brother really was interested in marine biology and lichens. I don't know, there's no linkage there. You have a thing about lichens. But we used to go rock pulling every weekend and we used to collect loads and loads of specimens that we took back and we had a giant tank at home and we used to look after all these sea creatures. And it just got me absolutely in love with biology. And then I started to get more interested from biology. I started to wonder about diseases and why some people got diseases and why some people didn't. So immunology started to feature in parasitology and that's kind of how I went into that that track. And this project's all to, to do with really my love of parasites, bizarrely enough, because I was working with a lot of immigrant communities who don't have parasites anymore and they were really worried that they had allergies now 
and I so it made me think well why is that what's going on and so that was my impetus to get involved with this project so what in terms of parasite where's a good place for people to start to learn about why they should know about parasites I mean there are beautiful books with fascinating kind of images uh, so where would you say point people in the, in the direction of, of what, what kind of work to find out about parasites well, just yeah to be kind of to, to increase their fascination because that's the thing isn't it you you yeah. have very interesting ideas but you need that moment where the brain is 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 lured you know the the, mm. the, the sarans on the rocks that won't actually dash you but instead will will start to enlighten you uh, well we've actually this is this this sounds like i'm really plugging it but colleagues of mine have actually created a, a free resource so you can you can download and learn about all the life cycles of different parasites I think sometimes coming to events like this is a really great way because you, you find out all sorts of science from a really, really broad spectrum. Um, there's a really lovely text, well not textbook, it's a really lovely book called um, Parasite Rex. That's oh, it's brilliant fabulous. by Carl Zimmer. Yes, Carl Zimmer. Yeah. Totally Carl Zimmer's stuff that. is brilliant. He also did that fantastic collection of, um, is it, what's it called? It's, it's science tattoos, tattoo ink or whatever it's yeah. called. People with, with equations on their body or, or, or with, with uh, the double helix. It's yeah. great. Yeah, Parasite Rex is, is, is a brilliant book. And then people like Ed Young write some really fabulous articles and things like the National Geographic and the Atlantic. They quite often feature parasites. There's loads of stuff on Twitter. There's, there's I should really mention that Ed Young's got a new book out called you, you are a multitude, yes. which of course we, we're always uh, uh, certainly Josie Long as well, enormous fans of Walt Whitman. So, uh, and, and it's interesting that when you see that crossover of poetry, because I was talking with someone the other day about William Blake, mm -hmm. about the fact that one side of William Blake, he was kind of like he didn't like the idea of, of science ruining the magic, and then people actually love his work so much. Scientists go, you know, lines like to see the world in a grain of sand, to see heaven in a wild flower is a great starting point yeah. for actually interrogating the universe and in the same way Walt mm. Whitman we are a multitude the you know Carl Sagan used that Ed Yong used that quite a few yeah. people so do you see the, the other use I mean I know that you, you've probably been involved in the maggot painting of Matthew Cobb <laughs> yeah. but again that that mixture of of art and not necessarily maggots yeah. but that crossover because here we are you know in a field where there are different bands you know everything everything are playing and public service broadcasting are playing and six five days of static but then people are coming here to have their lungs tested and then people are going over to the right uh, the, the the science girls mm. attend finding out things about x-rays and so that use of art as a springboard to, oh, to science critical i think well steam that's what they talk about they don't talk about stem now they are talking more and more about steam and you know when i started doing work with the immigrant communities because there was an english barrier we had to use pictures we had to use props we had to get away from this and i think art can make you think and interrogate things in a different way so these beautiful pictures of the bronchioles really kind of make you think and it's making people sort of go oh, okay this is how your lungs work and when you look at some of the great scientists so i'm reading i'm reading uh, matthew cobb's fantastic book at the moment and what really strikes me is the crossover that, and the way we've lost now you've got physicists asking questions about biology and genetics and you go back and further on you got people like leonardo da vinci and they were doing art and science you had a lot more crossover and i think almost we moved away from it now and now we're sort of saying oh we must be cross-disciplinary again but i think there was a spell that we'd lost that i think it's critical I think, yeah, that, I was with Matthew, actually, we went to the Whitworth recently, just going around, and I can't remember the name now of the artist, she won the Turner Prize, this mixture of images of work and sleep, it's fantastic. Um, so if there was one, uh, let me think of one piece 
of art science crossover work one one whether it is a painting there's that wonderful one of i think is it even just called something like the three oncologists or the four oncologists we have a beautiful mixture of the the kind of fear of surgery but also wonderful painting as well uh, obviously we were talking earlier about about films like gravity and interstellar and then of course you have all manner of authors whether it might mm -hmm. be philip k dick yeah. uh isaac asimov uh is there one piece in particular that stands out for you one of those ones that you you return to for science and art, let me think. Do you know, I don't know if it's quite what you're thinking, but it really made me think, and it was in the Whitworth Art Gallery, and I've forgotten the artist's name because I'm a bit scrambled today, um, but it was, it was, it sort of had this exploded set of objects, and it was about kind of war and the way objects fit together in space, and you just, it filled up a whole room, but you just stood there and the shadows it made, it was just stunning, but you just it made you think. It made you think about war, it made you think about how objects are recycled, it made you think about what objects are used for. I, it was, I don't know, it really, really struck me, that one, and that was one I saw quite recently. So I don't know if it's one I return to again and again, but it's one that I saw quite recently that still stayed with me about a year or later. Oh, well, that reminds me, there was a great one at the Science Gallery in Dublin. It was an exhibition called Fail Better. You know, the old Beckett line, fail, fail mm. again, fail better. And it was people's first versions of, so like Dyson's first attempt at a vacuum cleaner, and, and that, it was brilliant. Um, anyway, thank you very much. You're very welcome. There you go. Thank you. Well, were you getting, uh, I've, I've got it. Chinese. Yeah, Cornelia Parker. Right, so we found out now. So the guy in gunpowder. Yeah. Um, yeah, the piece of gunpowder. Uh, sorry, the gunpowder was laid everywhere. So he has a team of artists, and they lay it all under the piece of paper, and then everything is um, detonated or yeah. they're set fire to, and and the explosion sort of it's a kind of reminiscent of standing in the centre of I think Nagasaki. it's the uh, Nagasaki. And you're looking yeah. and and places like Hiroshima, you're looking at the like Avon Dome, you're having a 360 perspective on what it's like, and they've got this um, sort of like a, a, an artificial like lake of water that sort of reflects the light in all directions. You've got these sort of hues of like yellow and orange and things like that. And it's, just, it's a really Absolutely beautiful Absolutely beautiful. Look. I've got a picture of it up in my office. Actually, that's probably the one that I'm returning to. It was so stunning. It was kind of peaceful, but kind of awful at the it same is, time yeah. because it's about war. Now, do you know anything about the painting of the three oncologists? Oh, it turns know, out he's great on one bit of artwork, but he's, he's got no depth, has he? But my, my a colleague who we're going to start a project with about kind of history of worms, she's uh, did curated an exhibition at Manchester... The history Cal of worms? History of worms, yeah. Well, you know one of my favourite Darwin <laughs> books anyway, don't you? Tell is, of course, me. the formation of vegetable through the action of worms with observation on the oh, habits. Of course it is. Which I love, <laughs> which I genuinely do think is a fantastic book to read. One of my proudest things when I did my Darwin tour was the fact the number of people who went out and bought that book, which was oh. over seven, which I still think <laughs> is probably the highest sales that had had any decade, probably since the beginning of the 20th century. It's a great book. It's a really, you must have read it then. I haven't read it, but I'm going to read it's it It's the one now. where he does things like he, uh, uh, him and his son go out to the garden and he plays a penny whistle to the worms because he's trying to find out about you know the, uh, the, the the level of their hearing abilities and then when the whistle doesn't work they think well get the bassoon out see if something with a much lower oh. register then they shout at the worms then they take the worms inside with them are probably thinking oh god just keep the worms outside they play the piano to the worms and it's just the rigor of the testing of musical instruments on worms now you see i was just reading something similar but it's about smell and senses. So when you get uh, schistosome saccharia, they have to be able to sense their next host. And we don't know quite how they do it, but we think it's by detecting things like fatty acids on the skin, 
very subtle changes and maybe even like a one degree change in temperature as the next host enters the skin and it's got to be it's very matched so each schistosome species will only go into one type of snail so how they have that exact match we've got no idea and then they have to go into another host after that but it's all to do with olfaction we think oh, that's great thank you Oh, is it Ken Curry? Ken uh, Curry's a great Glaswegian really artist, as far as I remember Ken Curry. I've seen, but uh, is it three oncologists? Yeah, three Good. oncologists at the National Gallery. Really amazing. Yeah, I first saw it National Gallery of Scotland, I don't know where it is now, but that was... Uh, yeah, they, I'm sure they used to have some of his stuff at the... Um Oh, the gallery in Glasgow. The Museum of Modern Art, they've got the things yeah. like the guy, the, the looks like kind of homeless guy yeah. going through very, the, the way that he kind of, almost not quite metallic blue, but the yeah. mixture of the colours is, yeah, is, is yeah, amazing. Thanks very much. Okay. Brilliant. We were basically, uh, as the Infinite Monkey Cage, the support act to public service broadcasting. Here is Jay Wilgoose. Uh, Blue Dot Festivals, there will be a lot of background noise. This is the first day. Uh, the uh, the band that we are warming up for, we are putting the support slot with Infinite Monkey Cage for public service broadcasting. Uh, and I'm with Jay Wilgoose, who creates the... I mean, it's an incredible... For people who don't know, you take fascinating excerpts from, from public information films, from documentaries, and then put this incredible kind of tapestry of sound around it. So why did you stop? What was it that inspired you to do that? Um, mucking around, really. Good, good old-fashioned, you know, trying to keep myself entertained. Um, I, heard a, I heard a BBC Radio 4 documentary, Archive Air, about some BFI material that had gone online for the first time, and I was making kind of slightly odd, but, you know, with, with no direction. I was making my own kind of electronic music at home, and I just thought, well, maybe I could use some of this material, try and sound a bit like DJ Shadow, and... Um, so I tried that and failed miserably, but kind of ended up skewing off in this sort of odd but um, interesting direction. Well, it is good. I mean, there's friends of mine, my mate Fraser, basically, the moment that we got the first album, she's kind of going, oh, yeah, oh, this was made for us. Yeah, <laughs> British Film Institute archive yeah. from the 30s, 40s, 50s. You use Nightmare as well, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a very kind of narrow target audience, I think, but we, we do uh, hit them very hard. <laughs> but then it expands, doesn't it? Well, if, if it was put on paper, what you did, there may well be people who thought this isn't really for me, but then the fact that it just becomes this great soundscape, again, sometimes very short excerpts of, mm. of, of dialogue or... Like, what when you... Nightmare, which is, is a very famous, beautiful, mm -hmm. short film, uh, when you heard something like that, how do you match up what you're listening to and then the music around it? Well, with that song, um, I had this kind of musical idea anyway, which is based off... Um, oh, it sounds like we're in a sort of this farm depot, really doesn't great. it? It's like literally everyone who's got a little Every tractor single engine. has thought, driving, there's someone's recording a thing, just drive them all there. Oh, and make sure you bring in the... the, uh, the here comes the, uh, yep, forklift truck. It's all yep. here, all here. Great. Uh, coming straight towards us, probably about this. <laughs> the last sentence was the sentence that will be sampled as they celebrate your death. Uh, whether it's, I mean, they celebrate you well, after your death, not celebrate your death. Well, I wouldn't put it past them. Um, <laughs> Nightmare, yeah. I had, uh, I had this musical idea which is kind of inspired by Kate Bush running up that hill, that kind of um, sort of lolloping drumbeat, really. And, and uh, I wanted to do a similar thing but make it sound a bit like a train. And then um, it was kind of the musical idea came before trying to find something to match it to as a, from a documentary idea and you know Nightmare is, is one of the most famous British sort of documentary films of all time I'd say um, and uh, you know I wanted to do it but hopefully not do it in a way that was too um, you know cliched or, or passe I suppose but um, 
I, I was originally I wanted to make that song and not use you know the most famous bit of it, but actually it, it ended up going in anyway just because it, it seemed to work. So. Also, sometimes what's the most famous bit to 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 you mm. for a modern audience? There's a lot of people who wouldn't even know about the existence of Nightmare. So I think you do act as a kind of as as a portal into mm. the same way that British Sea Power do with some of the, the oh, yeah, soundtrack yeah. work that they've done. Yeah, you know I've always we're kind of a product of, of pretty much every band I've ever liked and watched basically um, you know take the bits that you like and, and, and you know maybe throw in a couple of things if you want but British Sea Power are a big you know inspiration for us in, in terms of certainly the way they kind of approach the live show and the gigs they do um, you know even going back to bands like the Manics and the stuff you'd learn through their songs and the sort of stuff that they would cover you know Kevin Carter being an example you know you, it's not necessarily stuff that you would come at if you were sort of a teenager you know you wouldn't be reading about a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer who killed himself basically <laughs> um, it, you know music is always a portal into learning about stuff that you might not otherwise know about I think all, all the best stuff is anyway and um, it's, it's nice that people seem to get that from some of our stuff as well I think there is a, that desire for sometimes when the mass media can appear to underestimate audiences, that in fact there are many audiences, very broad audiences, that quite like things that are, are, are literate. And uh, I mean, I was thinking the thing that I learned from your last album, which is incredible samples uh, of, of basically the race to the moon, uh, is I had never realised that in John F. Kennedy's speech, he doesn't just go, we choose to go to the moon, because he says, we choose to go to the moon and those other things. Which I thought, when I first said it, I thought, I presume that Jay Wilgoose has found some kind of cod sample, some <laughs> kind of... And then go, how could he... I mean, I know he was in a very tight corset on a lot of kind of drugs and stuff, painkillers, but we choose to go to the moon, that's it. No, don't have... And those other things. It's a kind of... It's, uh, it's, it's, it's very... Brings it back down to earth, doesn't it? No pun intended. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, he is kind of listing, I think the, the thing that's the rhetorical device has got him into that situation is, is, is a similar thing they've got here at Jodrell Bank, actually. It's defining the, the history of humankind as, you know, a, a few weeks or something. So it's, he's kind of gone through, you know, the developments of, of the earth and, you know, technolo technology and the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, eight seconds ago in that timeline would have been, you know, discovering the steam engine or something. And um, so he's kind of talking about the the grand history of, of technological advance of the human race and yeah he does just dismiss it as those other things my dad has a bee in his bonnet about that line as well he's, he's not happy about it but it's just it's somehow the flow I think we can let him get away with it you yeah, know, he's, yeah he's one of the yeah <laughs> it's one of the great, greatest speeches of all time still I think um, the, and you've helped remind us that nevertheless even he still occasionally <laughs> if not feet of clay certainly uh, small toes of clay um, the uh, final thing I was because this is a, a, a book podcast and I imagine there are a lot of people who would, who would kind of think they knew the kind of thing that uh, public service broadcasting would read what are the kind of uh, books that you were drawn to um, well, I, I did an English degree, so I've always been, um, you know, in the past, always been about fiction. You know, I had to be in my bonnet that non-fiction was a bit dry and boring. Um, and actually, it's been a revelation coming at things from a non-fiction point of view in the last few years. And, you know, doing reading about World War II, and then, the, the, you know, the space race, and then the next thing that we're going to do as well. It's, it's been a lot of non-fiction. Um, and it kind of, you know, it, it balances out. I now see fiction as, as a kind of... You know, holiday from from work, I suppose, and uh, you know, I still try and fit the old Dickens in here and there. And I'm a big fan of the sort of the epic Russian stuff, you know, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, any anything that's kind of long and sad and uh, slightly morose. 
I'm, uh, I'm into basically. See, Dostoevsky is a good example of. I was listening to some magazine the other day, mm -hmm. just listening to a song from under the floorboard, and you think again that bit where music, a lot of that new wave music, that post punk music, you could see here were people, not always from an art school. They might have had all manner of different backgrounds, but they mm. all they would sit in the library a lot of the time reading books, and they would read. Dostoevsky and come up with lyrics about what's it? I am angry. I am something. I am ill. My irritability. It, anyway, it's a great line, which yeah. I've not even misquoted. I've, I've not even <laughs> half quoted. But um, this does not bode well for the gig I'm about to do. So, where would you, if you have one recommendation on the on, for instance, the space race hmm. uh, for people to start? Where where is a good place for them to start? Really? Well, I started with, and, and it turned out to be a good decision. But uh, a man on the moon by Andrew Chaikin. That was a fantastic history of the Apollo program. And um, so that's got a kind of uh, more sort of overall view. But if you wanted to start with an actual astronaut's account of it, Mike Collins carrying the fire, that was unbelievably well written. And, and uh, yeah, he's, he's my favourite, Mike Collins. So uh, either of those two, you're, you're in good, good hands. Have you managed to meet up with uh, any Apollo astronauts yet? Because I presume that's really the reason that you made that <laughs> album. If I make well, it actually, like it's, more so that my, it's more so my dad could meet him, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, um, we, I, I was very lucky to meet um, Gene Cernan in, in, uh, in Austin, in, in Texas, because they were doing the South by Southwest Film Festival, and he just made his fantastic documentary, Last Man on the Moon, which is a great watch if you, if you can get hold of it. I think it's only just about getting a UK release now. Um, yeah, so I did manage to meet Gene Cernan, and, and I've been in contact with Gene Kranz, who is the, the flight director for um, Apollo 11 through you know most of the Apollo program, I think, famously played by Ed Harris with the waistcoat in Apollo 13. And um, he gave us a big thumbs up and a nice signed photo. It's amazing because, you know, this is stuff that I wrote in, a, in the back end of a garage in southeast London, you know, playing it to, to nobody. And it's amazing now in that garage I've got a signed hat by Gene Krantz saying, you know, failure is not an option. And every time I get a bit down, I look at it and go, yeah, come on, we can do it, we can do it. That's great. That's Alan Bean's one that I would love to I just find him mm. fascinating. And also because Hefner wrote a wonderful song about Alan Bean. He, is, is he the chap who turned into a painter? Or yeah, he painter, did a lot of painting, yeah. yeah. Elenov as well, actually, the, the, the first uh, spacewalker, I guess. He's, he's something of an artist. Um, he sort of did some sketches up in space. They, they don't tend to send... They obviously send the you know, geologist up with um, Harrison Schmidt, but they don't tend to send artists up there, do they? We're too delicate and flowery, probably. But, <laughs> yeah. we could, because the thing is, we don't have the tenacity. Oh, look, I've seen another shiny <laughs> thing. Yeah. Really, you read Chris Hadfield's book about his desire to become an astronaut and what, uh, the, he's from the age of nine. Yeah. Just every single day, what do I have to do in school today to make sure I become an astronaut? And, and you realise that, no, we so, oh, I've got another idea. Now maybe yeah. I'm not going to be so like DJ Shadow. Maybe I want to be <laughs> a little bit like early Judas Priest. Yeah, my, my thing in school was getting all the school work done so I could do the interesting stuff outside of school. That was my thing, whether it was football or computers or, or music, yeah. Um, that was my approach. <laughs> maybe it went wrong. But. Thank you very much, Jay Wilgus. Thank you. Underneath the Lovell telescope, many things can be found. Amongst them are science girls with superpowers. Right, so we're in the uh, Science Girl tent, which yes. is... Oh, I'm so old, I remember Riot Girl as a movement. That is how... Uh, um, so, first of all, what is Science Girl? What, what is the uh, idea behind it? It's been going for a while now. Yeah, it's been going for a few years. Um, we're a not-for-profit organisation, and what we do is we try and encourage not just girls, but everybody into science. So we've actually been talking to a lot of adults today, as well as the kids. Um, we've got some bits and pieces for sale, because we are not-for-profit, and all the proceeds that we get go towards sort of sending kids like you know science camps and things like that anything we can do to help um, and then we do all like different science festivals trying to encourage kids and tell them about all the different 
well, as we're doing today, superpowers that we well, have. That's what I'm going to find out. Um, so this, I love this idea. You've yes. got uh, various, you're wandering around, you are in capes, you have superpowers. Yes, because all uh, scientists are super, so we do have superpowers. So what is your superpower? So my superpower is x-ray vision, but not to see through things, but the, the ability to see x-rays, because for a living, I test x-ray equipment, CT scanners, all that type of thing. So my actual power is the ability to see those x-rays, to test them. And what do you find when you're, you're going out, when you're uh, trying to get kids kind of into science, what is the most uh, alluring idea where you just find, is, is, are there certain things where you think, wow, just seeing the reaction to a child finding out this about our universe is a delight? Yeah, sometimes it's like we've all got bits of uh, kit with us that we sort of use in, in our jobs. And so when you like open up the case and you're like, I've got all these things, they all go, wow, because you've got all these bits of gadgets and different bits and pieces like that. And like um, at Lancashire Science Festival, we did like a quick demo. One of the girls is a, a sports therapist. So we got some tape and she was like showing how to tape up a shoulder and things like that. So when they can just see it and physically like, go, oh, that's what it is. That's when they sort of click and you see that sort of reaction and they get really impressed. So with something like x-rays, yeah. you're talking about being able to yes. see things and you're talking about that leap of imagination yes. to the human ability to actually see those yes. rays. So how do you th how, what do you think is the best way of getting that across? So the way I explain it, I, I sort of tell them about it and then I ask them if, if they've ever broken a bone or had a picture of their bones and then I sort of explain about the radiation being can be harmful and things and then I show them I've got a dose meter with me so I sort of say well I use this to make sure that then you don't get hurt by the radiation and go through the details depending on the age of the kids depends on obviously how much detail you go into but um, yeah it seems to work they seem to sort of get it now what's what's the website just so people know it's uh, science girl two R's. I think the Riot Girl movement yes. had three R's. I'm not sure whether you've reduced them or I can't remember now. But it's sciencegural it with two R's.co.uk. That's fantastic. Thanks very much, Liz. Brilliant. I'm going to find out what your superpower is. So I've already found out. I found out the background of what's going on. So all dotted around uh, blue dot. And, and you are, isn't it great, right in front as well of the Lovell Telescope. It's a good way to spend a day, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, it's bad. Now you are... Various people in capes have a science superpower. Yeah. Can you explain what your science superpower okay, is? Okay, sure. So my superpower is time travel because I'm an archaeologist. Um, particularly, I'm a biomolecular archaeologist, which means that I look for uh, DNA in old bones, ancient bones, to try to find out about the people that the bones belong to. Oh, I love that. I, I interviewed Svante Parbo a while ago. Yeah. And oh, finding out yeah. about the, the, the best Neanderthal genes are those that have been cannibalised. I know those are cool, uh, you know, they? the best bones. That is so what was it that... Was there a moment where you thought, this is the world that I want to go into? Was it a slow transition or was there a kind of Damascene... Uh, it was a slow evolving. I wanted to be an archaeologist from when I was about 15, 14 maybe. And then I kind of changed my mind which types of archaeology I wanted to do. And then I found out about ancient DNA and thought, yeah, that's what I want. In terms of that, discovering that narrative, the narrative of, of you know, what it is to, to the history of human beings, what, what, what is the thing that you find, and of other living creatures on Earth, is there anything in particular where you think the, these revelations change the way we can feel about ourselves? I think, I mean, my personal interest has always been DNA, disease, so looking at the illnesses people have, looking at how the diseases change, how they move, identifying diseases so that we know what's where and what was, you know, where things came from, how they've moved, how they've changed maybe. What would be a good starting point for people who wanted to find out more uh, about how to, well, just un understand themselves from that level, that level of the, of the history of disease, the prehistory of disease? Where's a good point for people to start? 
Is there a book or anything oh. that you think where? Ah, oh, because I would recommend Svante Parbo's book. Is yeah, Svante Parbo's always good book. to read. Exactly. Um, even just looking at the general history of diseases, things like Charlotte Roberts, who's a paleontologist, and Alex Roberts, and people like that, they write lots of things about people and, and he's that kind of stuff anyway. Um, did you have a moment where there was... Is there anything revelatory where, where, as you've been going through discovering more, as you've done your studies, as you've now you know, become professional as well? Are, are there those little moments where you think that that was a revelation of, of understanding, uh, of, of your own understanding, right. that, that, that fact, that moment where you stumble upon something and you think that's not merely a beautiful sentence or a beautiful image or a beautiful idea, that is something that changes the way that I feel about the world? I think the awareness that actually you can still get these, these, the fact that these things last so long, that the molecules just last that long, blew me away a bit. I was just like, these things are so old, you know, not, I mean, the, the samples I work with are a lot less recent, but the fact that people have got DNA from Neanderthals and that they're, they're so old kind of just blew me away a bit, really. What are the problems where, uh, of, of, when a bone sample is found, for instance, what are the problems of, of trying to find uh, DNA that has, has not been uh, tainted? That hasn't, uh... Yeah, that's the nail on the head. It's getting to, getting to a bone, getting, getting someone in there quickly to get the samples, even from on site, really, so they're not handled by many people. Because obviously, particularly if you're trying to do human DNA, which is what I tried to do, all the archaeologists, all the people that are handling it are a walking source of DNA, so you're contaminating it left, right and centre, so you need someone getting in there getting the samples nice and early before they've been handled by lots of people, getting it from good sites so sites that are not too hot, that don't have sort of uh, lots of water flowing through things like that, things that might sort of compromise your chances of getting DNA uh, because otherwise contamination is your biggest issue, you've got to prove and you've got to prove beyond a doubt really that your DNA is authentic, so it needs to be small you need to be able, someone else needs to be able to replicate it I love that there was a story of someone that looking at a bone that they wanted. It was in a, a museum and they felt yeah. it would be a good one. And they just wanted to check whether it was varnished or not. Yeah. And the guy at the museum just picked up the bone and went, lick, and yeah, just exactly. licked the bone and went, nah, this one's been varnished. <laughs> and the idea of that, that mixture of kind of, you know, the, the great yeah. high science, but sometimes just licking the bone's enough to go, this will be no good whatsoever. Yeah, that's the big room money, isn't it? But yeah, it can, sometimes it can be that simple, I guess. Well, it's a very good superpower. Thank you very much okay. for, for revealing your identity as well. So we superheroes so rarely do. I know. Thank you very much. Thanks. You're welcome. That's one small step for man. Thanks very much for listening to the not quite, there's not as much Josie, just because Josie couldn't be there. She had other things on. Well, not uh, as much, you should say, not any. Well, no, but you were at the beginning of it. Oh, we're And you're at the end latitude. now. Latitude. No, 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 we're talking about Blue Dot. Yeah, well, yes. Yeah. You never came to Blue Dot. Of, in the main meet of the podcast, I do not yeah. feature, Robin. In the main meet of the podcast, you were in Margate with Grace Petrie. Oh, we're having a great time. Didn't we have a wonderful time the day we went to Margate? We played ball, and we had four different colour of ball, yellow, orange, red and blue. So we called the Jack the electorate, and we hosted elections for the next, like, ten... Uh, for the next hundred years to see who would win. And because Grace Peacher is really good at ball and she always played the SNP, it was an SNP landslide time after time. Very interesting. Ball, not bowls. It's like Brexit never happened, Josie. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much for listening to our Blue Dot special. Uh, we'll be back with more normal book shambles soon. Probably next week. Thank you very much to everyone who has been supporting us. Uh, you can go and pledge. We're not expecting much. You can only do it if you've got cash, you know, obviously. Uh, but you, if you go to cosmicgenome.com slash shambles, you will find our Patreon page, and then we can keep making these things. So thank you, those who've been helping us. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. <laughs>